Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Here, Here comes the binge. binge. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Binge Movie Podcast. My name is Jason Leroy. I'm Rebecca Olarte, and today we're going to review three movies. Macbeth, Janice, Little Girl Blue, and James White. And as always, we're going to use a three-tiered rating scale. Um, binge it is the highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but kind of meh. And then send it back means what, Jason? Life is too short for this mess. So let's get started. Today's first movie review will be of Macbeth. And you probably never heard this story before, so I'll give you a little synopsis. <laughs> Macbeth, the Thane of Scotland, receives the prophecy from a trio of witches that one day he will become the king of Scotland. Consumed by ambition and spurred to action by his wife, Macbeth murders the king and takes the throne for himself. No, I thought you said Macbeth, not Empire. Are we talking about Empire or Macbeth? <laughs> All both. Okay, awesome. Let's do it. So you saw this movie under somewhat tense circumstances? I did. Uh, I saw it while I was in London uh, the weekend of the Paris massacres. Oh. And it was the day after the attacks that I saw this movie. Uh, I had a plan to go to Paris the next day, and then I had to, you know, cancel that trip. And uh, and I was terrified to leave my hotel room. I didn't know what to do. Um, but I knew, God damn it, that I wanted to go see Macbeth. <laughs> because I... what's luckier, really, than Macbeth? <laughs> and uh, because it was available in theaters in England a month before it was available uh, here, stateside. Right. And I was like, I'll be damned if I let the terrorists stop me. From enjoying the illicit thrill of seeing a movie before it's released domestically. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I that was, like, the only thing I did that day. I, I like, like, sat in, like, terrified huddle in my hotel room. And then I, like, walked three blocks to go see this movie. And then I, like, ran home. That's, like, a very Jason Leroy. Like, when when scared and when, when things are unsure, mm-hmm. retreat to the womb of cinema. Yeah. You know, I feel like every story I tell my grandkids about, like, where were you when this happened? I'm like, a movie theater. <laughs> That's where I went. Where were you when you got married? It's like, well. There well, I guess it was kind of a theater. Yeah, it was a theater. You know, theater. there were, you know, there was at least one very old lady. And there was a marquee. And there was a marquee. And uh, and there was a movie star, movie director, movie writer who officiated the wedding. There you so, go. boom, exactly. weddings. So they happen at movie theaters too. Macbeth. When, what was the last Shakespearean adaptation we've seen before this? Oh man, I don't know. What was the last? One? I don't know if it was. Well, let's see. So there's always like some versions of Hamlet or Othello. Uh, kind of is it the, you thinking about the Julia Stiles? Yeah, one? obviously. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. That that pinnacle of of late nineties cinema. Is that Mackay Pfeiffer? It was Mackay Pfeiffer. There was a movie. There was Mackay Pfeiffer. There was he, yeah. Those but both of those things did exist at one played, point in time. And he played oh, and Josh Hartnett was oh, that right. that evil Iago, and poor Julia Stiles was Desdemona. So let's just pretend that was the last that Shakespeare the last movie, one. because really nothing else has mattered since then. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I feel like, you know, it's, people know at this point, filmmakers, that if they're going to try to launch a new film adaptation of a Shakespeare play, they need to have something fresh and new to bring to it, because, you know, like, they know what kind of source material they're working with here, you know? Right. And then Baz Luhrmann kind of really set the tone with Romeo and Juliet. 
that was a tone that he set. But <laughs> okay, in, not the, maybe not the tone. It was his tone. It was. It was. He his set tone. his tone with it, and it was a glorious tone. Uh, you know, if I'm being honest, that's my favorite Shakespeare movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I. I don't know. I. I love it. I mean, like, obviously, there's a huge nostalgia factor. Sure. Yeah. That uh, came out at a very anyone around our age group. Important time. You know, was obsessed with the soundtrack, and oh, you know, yeah. and obsessed with Leo, and obsessed with Claire, and so uh, yeah. No, I mean, like. I still love that movie. That was like the Garden State of people who were about ten years older than Garden State. <laughs> I felt like maybe not, maybe not in that sort of like che- cheesy way, but in that that like this was a really important movie at, at a certain time mm-hmm. in life, and the soundtrack was killer. Yeah, it was definitely a milestone. Uh, yeah, I think soundtrack especially it was like the Garden State of its day. My uh, favorite adaptation is the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Oh, it was very brave of you to to acknowledge yeah. Mr. Gibson's uh, proficiency in any area. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that, you know, when when I first, you know, appreciated, I guess there's a there's always a, you know, you like somebody before and then Sure. But it's not even and him so much. I mean, like you have obviously called police officer sugar tits before in your life as well. Oh my god. So, and it's so your customary greeting. You're like, "Hello, sugar tits." Like, "Was I driving too fast?" Like, "Man or woman doesn't matter to you." And that's why I've had my license suspended 7 or 8 times. Mhm. Mhm. You're like, "When will they realize it's a term of endearment?" <laughs> So is this like a Boslerman? Yeah, I'm not calling you shitty tits. I'm calling you sugar tits. <laughs> What's the deal? You just wait. You just wait. Uh, so yeah, you know this is this is this is sort of mm, I would say it's almost sort of like a very mystical, very Spartan uh, adaptation of Macbeth. Uh, it really has long, long stretches of silence in it. Uh, it's not an especially talky movie. So is it like the Titus Andronicus? Titus? It's not nearly as um, audacious as as the Titus movie was with um, not the TV An- show, right? <laughs> not not, not was... the TV show. <laughs> I mean, we don't have enough time to get into the parallels to that, but <laughs> but no, the Julie Taymor Titus movie with Anthony Hopkins and, and Jessica Lange. Mm-hmm. No, that was a, just a, an enormous spectacle, and this is a lot more sort of low key than that. Okay, uh, it definitely it does not want to ever remind you of the Macbeth that you think you're signing up for. Like, they don't have the witches deliver the double-double toil and trouble um, monologue. That's cut. Um, Anytime that they have any super recognizable dialogue that they're like, well, we can't not have this, they seem to just direct the actors to slow down a lot. (laughs) So there's just long, long pauses, like, tomorrow and tomorrow. (laughs) So that, like, maybe, like, every time you'll actually, like, you'll lose the thread, and then they say the next word, and you're like, oh, that's right, it's still this speech. And then, but then, you know, you keep forgetting, and so you're not just, like, reciting Waiting it with it. the movie. Yeah. Um, so they cut out a lot of, they cut out a good chunk of the dialogue so that it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't feel too much like it's just mimicry of the play. Um, they changed, they, it's sort of the Steve Jobs movie of Shakespeare because they put people in scenes that weren't there (laughs) and they sort of create things for dramatic purposes that aren't from the original. So Uh, is this like a, like, so Aaron Sorkin directs this, there's a lot of like walking and head chopping and like (laughs) walk and head chop with me. You know, (laughs) right. Walk and plunder. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's just very, it's very much a mood piece. Like visually this movie is, is everything. It's, it's, it's gorgeous to look at, even though the color palette is very much limited to like 
the Brown family. Um, <laughs> but I know about your last family reunion. Uh, it's 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 gorgeous to look at, even though the color palette is very limited to like yeah, rusts and dark reds and browns and uh, in but which I'm you know it sounds like I'm trying to find nice things to say about it, which I kind of am. Okay. Because you know, in the acting is fine. You know, Fastbender is is great as always. Yeah. Speaking and, of beautiful to look at, it's yeah. uh, Marion Cotillard and and Michael Fastbender. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes, quite a couple. Um, unfortunately, they don't, they don't really bone or anything. Right. So there's none of that. Um, nice review. Yes. <laughs> they they should have boned. <laughs> That's my feedback on the casting of these two iconic <laughs> roles. Uh, yeah, you know, Fassie is great. Um, he has a, he, he has this one, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sort of unnecessary but nice scene where he's shirtless in a lake. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the play. Mm. But, like, he's just staying there, like, in a lake, just like, emerging from the water, you know, with his, like, perfect V-shaped, you know, right. torso. Uh, and his little, like, you know, white pajama pants, period appropriate. And uh, and then, of course, you're just, like, on dong watch. Anytime that, like, that part of his body <laughs> is even, like, on screen, you're did like, you, it's there somewhere. I know it. Did you get what it. you were looking for? You know, I feel like I actually saw more of it in Steve Jobs. I feel like there was actually really? a scene where he's walking down the hallway and I could like see it like taped to the inside of his thigh. I'm like, oh, hey, there it is. Wow. Dong watch. I didn't. Okay. So maybe you need to enlighten me. About is his it like dong? like a well-known fact? Oh, that... yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's like notorious. I because... like how you say, oh, yeah, in that voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone knows about the dong. No, I just think you know about this. No, girl. It's not just me. Uh, he did this movie called Shame a few years ago. Oh, I remember. This, where he was a sex addict? Yes. And he has like a very gratuitous, that's what I was looking for. He has um, a fairly gratuitous full frontal nude scene in that movie um, where it's sort of just like a static camera and he's naked. And he kind of like walks around the corner and kind of like walks toward the camera and it's like swinging like a pendulum as he's walking. Oh, wow. So yeah, he immediately, there was even jokes about it um, at like the Golden Globes and the Oscars that year. I think George Clooney made a joke about how he was going to go golfing with it. So yes, this is a, a well-known thing. You're just not, you're just not following enough penis-related news articles, I Rebecca. I need to update my RSS feed, <laughs> Celebrity dong watch. I'll get, um, you, I'll get you subscribed. So I, uh, Marion Cotillard? I don't even know how you'll, how you'll describe her. <laughs> Uh, you know, Dongy. Uh, no, I mean, she, she, she really taps into sort of the, you know, again, the word, you know, mysticism kind of comes to mind because, you know, the whole thing is so drenched in that from, you know, the witches and their mm-hmm. prophecies and, and, uh, you know, these, these sort of desperate wandering characters, you know, grasping for some sign from somewhere in the universe and, you know, the gods and the cosmos above that, you know they're doing the right thing, or that they'll have God's favor whenever they make these plays for the for the for the for the throne, and um, the Game of Thrones they're playing really. <laughs> and uh, so this is them being like, you know, the universe told me I should quit this job, and I'm hashtag blessed. Yes, yeah. There's a lot of that. Sort it's of like thing. I'm, uh, yeah. I was told the universe told me to kill the king, so I'm hashtag blessed, and now <laughs> hashtag the king. But so yeah, Marion Cotillard is. I mean, she looks great. She has those enormous fucking eyes, which definitely come in handy. Uh, in this movie when she's eyes. like sitting there yeah just all eyes yeah so like the eyes are like her dong <laughs> so uh the uh, thing is what your eyes go to when you're watching her and um and it's where she does her best work yeah so definitely uh so yeah so she's you know she's she's fine you know her, i think the fact that she you know she's it's courageous for a french actress 
um, for whom English is not her first language to tackle iambic pentameter. Right. Um, I wouldn't say that she's super successful, but it's there in spirit. So um, I don't normally like to read reviews of movies before we review a movie, Mm -hmm. Um, but I had read a little snippet um, where it was mentioned that you never actually they never state that Lady Macbeth is Scottish. Oh. So it's just as possible that she would be French, mm. which mm-hmm. makes gives it a little bit more of a forgiving um, tone about about her. I guess so. I don't remember them ever saying that she's French either. I no. don't really specify right. anyone's uh, you know uh, background, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's just kind of. The movie's kind of a shrug. Like, I just don't feel like we need more Shakespeare movies. At the end of the day, like, I feel like we are past that. So we have Empire. Yes. We have... Yeah, so Empire is, you know, King Lear. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's and that's that's cool to take a Shakespearean premise and then sort of build something new and fresh and unexpected out of it. And as long as you also don't use fucking I am a pentameter, right. <laughs> um, then great, go to town. I mean, he, he, you know, he hatched most of the plots we still use today. Like, right. you know, we can't sure. just throw that out. It's impossible to. Um, but if you're going to go back to him and make a movie out of it, then like, God damn it, have something to say. Right. I have something right. fresh to do. Like there was this great adaptation of Richard III in the 90s that updated it to like World War II era Germany. It had uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Ian McKellen oh. and Annette Benning. And it was really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, do something interesting with it, which is not what has happened here. Uh, you know, the, I think the director, Justin Kurzel, has a really strong visual point of view, and mm-hmm. that's what comes through the most in the movie. So that's why I keep coming back to that. Like, looks great, great photography, great art direction. All that's great. Acting is fine. But there's really not much to be gained from this movie. Yeah, and I think it's sort of the same thing with Titus. You you're going you can only carry an audience so long when you make it you take something that's gorgeous and then you make it beautiful but then when you can't when the the dialogue becomes so unrelatable and unless the acting can really carry it and and make it relatable mm-hmm. which is a a burden that I wouldn't I right. you know um, can't imagine being successful easily yeah um, I'm talking about the TV show right I'm talking about the TV show I thought so right <laughs> right. Still <laughs> heavy, heavy, um, heavy as the crown. You, yeah, you, you just you need to change it up. Yeah, it, we're too far from that now. And I realized like how completely you know just like awful and stupid we sound saying like we shouldn't have Shakespeare in English, but I, I just I, just, I feel like I'm just I just can't. Right. And like you know it's gonna it's only gonna get worse. It's only gonna get harder as yeah. you know you know as like the dipshits that are kids today. You know, get older. And, um, you know, I mean, it's one thing to read it, and it's one thing to, like, force yourself to comprehend it when you're reading it in school. But, you know, it, as anyone who's ever tried to learn another language knows, right. reading something and being able to understand it when it's spoken are entirely different things. Right. Uh, and I feel like that's the way with Shakespeare in English. It's almost, you know, it's archaic. It's an archaic Absolutely. form of the language. And I just, it's just, it's nothing but a distraction when you're watching a movie with, 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 old english it's a distraction like it's where your mind is the whole time you're like okay now what are they saying like what the hell are those words you're trying to like picture them in front of you as if you're reading a book so you can like follow along right and maybe that's just me um no i think that that i think that makes sense and i think that to hold the standard that you need to follow the the dialogue you know exactly and and use shakespeare in english would be to say that like they should also speak you know anything that takes place in italy should be in italian and Mm -hmm. like that we drop that and that we suspend our belief enough there right um and i and and Adaptations that have been done using more modern language have been successful. It's com- mm-hmm. it's completely possible to continue continue to use the his his 
basic These human stories, relatable stories. Yeah, and, and right. even you know the same theme of, of the dialogue and mm-hmm. and adapt it and make it relatable to people. Yeah, and I'm not saying don't do any more on on, on the stage, you know, right. which is oh, you right. know like I would never you know suggest that. But as far as movies, as far as you know cinema as as the form, you know as the medium, I just I just think it's time to retire iambic pentameter. And, uh, and just, yeah, if you're going to go back to the bard, have something fucking interesting to say about it. And this movie doesn't. So we're giving it a... You know, it's, it's, it's too beautifully made for me to reject it outright. So this is a consume in moderation. Consume in moderation. Macbeth is out today and is not rated. Today's second movie is Janice Little Girl Blue. Musician Cat Power narrates this documentary on Janice Joplin's evolution into a star. From letters that Joplin wrote over the years to her friends family, and collaborators. As it gets closer, more probable, being a star is really losing its meaning. But whatever it means, I'm ready. Is this the first official movie about Janis Joplin? Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, It's certainly the most high-profile movie about Janis Joplin Mm -hmm. to date. Um, As famously parodied on 30 Rock, uh, it has been extremely difficult uh, making a movie about Janis Joplin has been like the white whale of hmm. of like Hollywood for decades. Uh, there have been so many. Like the list is probably a mile long of actresses who've been attached to play Janis Joplin at one point or another, and no narrative feature about her has 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 ever materialized. Everyone from you know fucking uh, Renee Zellweger to I think recently Amy oh, wow. Amy Adams was attached on one. Um, people who are generally are older than Janice because Janice died at 27. The you know, curse she's 27. A, yeah, the 27 club. But uh, but yeah, so so many actresses going back into, certainly into the early 90s, if you, maybe into the 80s, I don't know. Um, and so that has yet to happen. But now we have this documentary, uh, which is by far sort of the biggest, most official, authorized uh, film about Janice Joplin to date. Do you know what the whole, is it like fan, the, her family that? I think her family it? must be, a big part of it. Uh, her, she has two siblings uh, who are alive who um, who talk in this documentary in Janice Little Girl Blue, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think that getting their cooperation is kind of everything. Okay, and uh, and also of course getting the rights to the music, oh, uh, right. which famously in Thirty yeah. Rock is is the hurdle yes. they ran into. They had neither the name rights nor the music rights, and so. Jackie Jorm Jop emerged. <laughs> I keep getting this whole situation confused. With, I'm not sure what is reality and what is 30 Rock. <laughs> You're like, she ate cats, right? Because <laughs> I'm not cool with that. But, you know, different times in the 60s. And this is directed by Amy Berg. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's famously covered very heavy topics. Yes. Um, sexual abuse, mm-hmm. religion, um, scandal. Does this Is this movie kind of like the the dark side only or does it kind of cover a lot more of her life than just the grisly details of you know substance abuse and yeah i would say that it's 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 not especially grisly it's definitely not a super dark portrait of janice it seems to be very interested in and i think maybe that's part of why the family worked with uh, amy berg mm. was because you know they saw eye to eye about what they wanted to do which was to really make a movie that captured her spirit and her essence and you really do watching this movie uh, you walk away feeling a very vivid, very visceral sense of what her energy was like and what she was like as a person and what she was about, you know, beyond the kind of persona mm-hmm. that right. she sort of paint herself into during her brief career. Uh, you definitely, there's, there's so much great archival footage in this movie and so much of it is just really just close-ups of her face and her face is just an open book. Like you can just see everything she's yeah. feeling, everything she's thinking. And um, and so, yeah, I would say the movie is 
a lot more focused on just evoking her and like sort of evoking her memory. And um, so, no, it's definitely, it's not like a smear piece. It's not a, it's not a, and then she did all these terrible things. You know, it doesn't even go into all of her arrests. Like one of her most famous mugshots they never even talk about. Um, And then, you know, when it comes time to, you know, the the drugs are only brought up insofar as they were, you know, they were a big part of her life. And they, but it contextualizes it into like, here are all the things that she was struggling with, you know, from her just intense feelings of unworthiness Mm -hmm. and, you know, on through having that kind of artistic temperament where she was too sensitive for the world. Right. Uh, You know, she was the kind of woman who, you know, she could not shut things out. Feeling the feelings all around her, she couldn't keep out. Uh, the kind of thing, you know, like in Fiona Apple's song, every single night. <laughs> and she says she can't, you know, can't keep any of the feelings out. She can't, you know, shut them out. They, they all just are in there all the time. Janis Joplin had that kind of live wire thing where everything around her impacted her emotionally. And so she, you know, took a lot of drugs to cope with that. Right. It's like sort of like when people who are deaf get like cochlear implants mm-hmm. and we're sort of so we've adapted this way to like buffer out noises that we're used right. to so that we're like like constantly inundated by kind of this yeah s- we can this break out the signal and the noise where I, people seem to have that emotionally as well yeah so. no that's a good analogy yeah she was just hypersensitive to everything around her mm-hmm. and uh and she you know didn't have a better way of coping than to uh take drugs and so that's what she did and funny I'm saying take drugs like they do in the movie because I think the 60s you said take. <laughs> no one really says you do take drugs. drugs now. Yeah, they're always, well, Janet would go, you know, Janice would go and take heroin. And like, oh, do, wow. Like, yeah. Do you take heroin? I think heroin, heroin takes you. Heroin takes you, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's be honest. Um, so uh, on the substance abuse, this movie is narrated by Cat Power, who is, his, you know, we've known publicly has struggled with substance abuse and alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Does that add any sort of depth to it? So to be clear, what, um, you know, what Cat Power, what, you know, what Sean Marshall does, is she, I think she's billed as Sean Marshall in the movie. Mm. Um, what she does is she reads the letters that Janice wrote home. Okay. So she doesn't narrate it in the sense that she's like, and then Janice moved to San Francisco or right. that kind of thing. Um, it's not like uh, Arrested Development. Right, yeah. No, she's not the Ron Howard of the <laughs> of this documentary. <laughs> so, yeah. So what they've done is they brought her in to read the letters that Janice would write home. Did you feel like there was like an identification there? Did it? Did it? Re- was it really you know sort of impactful i think that you know i was i was reading uh someone's comments on this today and they thought that she brought a lot more to it than i thought she did okay um you know i think that they're 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 just letters and you know she kind of um you know she tries to bring them to life in whatever way she can without sounding like she's doing a janice joplin impression right (laughs) um but one of the women who they interview over the end credits uh because there's there's a quick little montage over the end credits of them talking to like kind of bigger stars getting them to give little talking heads about Janice and her impact and her legacy. Because in the actual movie, they keep it to, like, family and friends, people who knew her. There's mm-hmm. no, like, fawning over her from, like, fans. Right. Um, but over the end credits, they have Juliette Lewis speak about Janice Joplin's impact on her. And I felt like just her voice and the way that she can do, you know, like, I think, you know, she's an actress, first and foremost. Sure. And she's a, a rock star. And she kind of does Southern Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. we've all seen, and so I felt like Juliet Lewis would have been uh, would have brought a lot of power um, to the uh, narration. Okay. So not it's not saying Sean Marshall was bad or anything, but it just like I it, I was always just aware like oh there's Sean Marshall trying to like talk like an actor. Ah, uh, uh, I see. Full disclosure, you are 
card-carrying member of her fan club. So I am of Julia, Julia Lewis's Lewis fan, fan club. club yeah. Yes, uh, but the movie brought her. The movie put her in there. I'm not just bringing her up. The movie saw connections <laughs> too. Yeah, they talked to her. They talked to Pink. Uh, yeah. Really? Me, yeah, Pink's in there. I'm sorry. I, I was what? Pink? <laughs> yeah, Pink. Kelly is... Clarkson was busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. They brought in Pink at the end to talk about Janice. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so there, I think that, you know, clearly Sean would, you know, relate to Janice, but so then with Juliet, cause she also had her, you know, drug moment right. and got clean. But, uh, and Juliet Lewis, by the way, would have made a hell of a Janice, yeah. um, as just playing her in a movie. So, but enough of me. Enough about, enough about you. <laughs> <laughs> but how would Julianne Moore have done? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> Actually, no, she's not, um, she doesn't have the right face for it. No. 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 Um, so I know uh, a movie that, that impacted you a lot and that you really liked, um, Amy, an, another music documentary came out mm-hmm. this year, two similar lives, um, yeah. tragic endings, same um, age, same age. How do you, how do you compare these two documentaries? Uh, they're, they're really, um, they're really fascinating compliments to one another since they are both coming out this year and they mm-hmm. are both about female artists who, you know, had similar arcs in terms of you know being having these voices that just made them famous immediately, mm-hmm. um, and then you know having the struggling with, be, well you know, they're so young yeah yeah I think you know like we 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 project so much onto these lives once they conclude prematurely, but what we forget is that they were so young while this was happening right so watching the movie watching Little Girl Blue you kind of want to be like Janice what the fuck's wrong with you like why were you so obsessed with what boys thought of you right like why did you care so much why would you let bother you so much um you know didn't you see your own greatness and um but she was really young and she was alone and you know in a boy's world and uh so and I think you know watching Amy you're like you know you had so much going for you I mean whatever you know you have all those thoughts whenever you watch these movies and you're mm-hmm. just angry because these are great singers who could have had long amazing careers and then they were cut short but um one thing that struck me in particular about both Janice and Amy is that they both to quote I think Caitlin Moran um she said about Amy Winehouse that she tried to look like her music mm. Okay. And I think that that is what Janice did too. Uh, there's some commentary in the movie from some of the, some of the dudes that she worked with about like, you know, when she kind of got too into what they thought of as like a caricature of herself. Mm. Um, but I think that Janice was trying to to look like her music. Yeah. You know, she had a very specific kind of kind of drag that she would put on. Um, you know, to go out there, and it was very you know she took it very seriously. This was like the Janice Joplin persona. You know, yeah. was having the you know, having like the boas, you know, pin in her hair and having the big glasses and the big fur coat and, you know, like the, we've all seen these pictures. Like they're right. so, they're so iconic. And what's crazy is watching these archival footages, you know, footage clips and seeing her actually there as a human being in the moment, um, you know, talking and being vulnerable and not just being like this kind of like this smiling or wailing visage yeah. um, behind the glasses with the boas trailing from her hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so one main difference between Amy and Janice Little Girl Blue is that this Janice is much more of a um, traditional documentary. Okay. Very much more of a traditional documentary. Um, I think it was actually produced for American Masters, the PBS series. Oh, okay. um, it's not going to be airing there um, yet because they're doing a theatrical run because I think they, they see awards potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was produced for American Masters, and so it's much more conventional and straightforward. You know, it has all the talking heads, and, and you know, uh, it has the narration. It has, uh, you know, it just feels much more like, okay, yeah, this is the kind of documentary we've seen a million times. Mm-hmm. Unlike Amy, 
where the director, Asif Kapadia, really found, you know, he has his own distinct way of telling documentary stories where it's more of just like a montage um, with no actual narration and with no talking heads on camera. Right. Ever. Uh, so I think that Amy is certainly the more um, striking achievement uh, documentary-wise. But uh, Janice Little Girl Blue is still uh, is very essential just because I think Janice Joplin's story will always stand as was well, a tragic one, but yeah. at, but as an inspiring one and as a relatable one uh, with with who she was growing up and and who she became and you know the ways that did and did not fulfill her. Yeah, the sort of cinema lockdown, media lockdown on her life has it leaves me a little bit more more uh, in the dark about her. Um, you know, you just kind of know from what you see short you know, clips here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot I don't know. Does this movie provide context around, like, her and uh, being, like, a woman trailblazer during this time of, like, male rock, mm-hmm. you know, god times? God, god times? <laughs> yeah, we'll call them god times. You know, they were Words. gods of rock. Gods of rock. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a golden god. Like an almost exactly. famous, remember? <laughs> um, so... The thing about it's interesting the way this movie contextualizes Janice um, in her relationships with other women. Uh, there's a really kind of almost damning clip where um, someone asks her, they're asking her about like, oh well. So I think it's like a radio interview. So I think this audio clip is radio interview where this this dude's asking her like, so it seems like women's libbers don't really like you because of the way that you put your sexuality out there. And she speaks at first very kind of pointedly and eloquently about she's like, well, I am kind of. I am everything that they want in terms of like what they're fighting for. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I am just out there. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm making these things for myself and I'm pushing, you know, the envelope and I'm finding new ways of expressing, you know, female sexuality. And she's very on point, but then they're like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, you've been criticized for not having any women in your band. Um, you know, what's that about? And she's like, well, find me a good female drummer and I'll put her in my band. Oh. Um, and it's like, oops, um and uh and then they're like and what about you know and she's like and she's like man she's like i don't you know she's like i don't need any you know women on on the road with me she's like i have enough competition as it is oh well so yeah. uh so yeah it's like oops well um yeah i mean so janice was i mean she was let's not i mean she was essentially pre-feminist you yeah. know she died in 1970 right um so you know so she kind of she kind of was not feminist, but also couldn't help but be completely feminist. Just the mere fact of her. Right. Just everything that she did to challenge, you know, social norms about how women should look and behave right. and, and how, what their voices should sound like. And um, so she couldn't help just the mere fact of her. We just blew everything out of the water and mm-hmm. made a whole new, really broke the mold and made a whole new way that women could behave um, and that women in music could be and look and sound and all those amazing things. So even though she, but, but I think that it still makes her relatable. Yeah. Like I was saying, because like she grew up so like, she was very aware that she was ugly and that's a huge point that they returned to again and again and again in the movie because it was a huge point for her. Like right, exactly. She was like, uh, she, you know, she felt like really, really unfuckable. She felt profoundly, eminently unfuckable. And all she wanted was for like men to like her and be drawn to her and she was so agreeable with everyone all the time. And 
so you know she because she she was like oh I, I have to be the nice girl and i have to be i have to be you know friendly with everyone and and you know like maybe eventually someone will like me and you know so it's really sad it's mm-hmm. it's, it's heartbreaking really to see you know how desperately she just wanted to be validated and how she kind of got that from her fans but then she would talk about in her letters home how you know at the end of the day all of the dudes in her band would like go home and like fuck like 40 groupies and she would go home by herself every single time huh. and then she would just sit there by herself and then she would take drugs right uh so um so it's really yeah it's really yeah, the, the moment to be able to step back and sort of take a take a more educated or uh thought-provoking answer to those questions would mm-hmm. be something sometimes it's a bit of a luxury mm-hmm. when you're not kind of wrestling with your own demons yeah. and sort of a subject of your own yeah. situation there, um there that, was yeah, the idea of her being, uh, you know, any kind of feminist role model wouldn't even have occurred to her at the time. I mean, right. there were there were there were barely the words, right? Uh, you know, like for her to even use. Um, and the men in this movie kind of cast a lot of. You can see just from the interviews the men give what kind of boys club she was dealing with here. Like, um, like Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead is in the movie, and he like makes references to what she sounded like having sex in the house. Things are just really disrespectful. Oh, really? Uh, and, you know, they all talk about her like, oh, yeah, well, you know, she wasn't really, you know, she knew she wasn't pretty and we all knew it. And, and you know, like the men are just, you know, it reminds you that like <laughs> what Valerie Solanas wrote in the 70s was true, that like men of that movement were fucking cavemen. Yeah. Like they were not enlightened, uh, you know, yeah. like the way that yeah. they're, you know, the, the movement was supposedly about enlightenment, but it was kind of very regressive in a lot of ways. Right. You know, like men were like, you know, going back to back to the garden, back to nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want women barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And that was very much part of the hippie movement. Yeah. And so the men mm-hmm. in this movie, when they talk about Janice, with the exception of Dick Cavett. Um, the, they had a kind of a special relationship. They did. They did. And that's explored a lot in this movie. Really? He, he, everything he says about her in this movie, because he's still, he's with us and he's in the movie mm-hmm. talking about her. And he, yeah, he definitely seems to understand her better than anyone else in the movie. They had such a special bond. And unlikely... Um, but special yeah. bond, and uh, so it's it's really it's really fascinating uh, hearing him talk about her because he seemed to have insight into her that no one else really had. What's the rating on this one? Uh, you know, I guess I'm gonna go ahead and say uh, binge it because I feel like we need um, more stories like this about amazing creative women. Uh, we need to just you know plunge into them and learn from them and celebrate them and anything that makes you want to break out your Janis Joplin records then I think it's it's thumbs up from me. Janis Little Girl Blue is out now and is not rated. And now it's time for our pick of the week, James White. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick 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 it's a pick, pick of the, the week. week. James, a 21-year-old New Yorker, struggles to take control of his self-destructive behavior in the face of momentous family challenges. She may die any day. She is scared to death. You need to relax. So a movie about a sad white guy. Yeah. Why should I care? Well, you know, uh, it's just a really incredibly well done sad white guy movie. Uh, (laughs) Unlike the other throwaways. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of sad white guy movies that are just mediocre. And they don't necessarily deserve to exist. Right. Uh, but this is this is really an acting showcase, first and foremost. Uh, the character, the, the title character of James White is played by Christopher Abbott, who most of us know, unfortunately. From Girls. From Girls as Charlie. Sort of one of the most risable characters of the whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, who definitely. who clearly became aware of that and quit. Right. He's the only person who ever quit girls. Uh, and this, Apparently, he's still working. And he is still working. Uh, he has done uh, a few other indies, too. And, um, and in this role, he is just, like, jaw-dropping. Really? He is so intense and so thoughtful and so soulful in this movie. Like, he is just... He catches you by surprise again and again with his reactions to things. And the camera is very, very close on his face for most of the movie. And just the things that are revealed about his inner life are are remarkable. It's a great, 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 great performance from him. Wow. Yeah. Um, definitely makes you forget all about Charlie and that stupid dot-com he starts. <laughs> Um, another er- uh, hometown favorite, hometown boy, is in the movie as well, Kid Cudi. Kid Cudi, he is. Yeah, he plays uh, James's uh, best buddy, How's Cudi the Buddy. And uh, you know he's there. He's in the movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know he doesn't really have much to do dramatically speaking, um, but he successfully see. I, I did not realize it was him. Okay. Well, okay. Um, so good. you know, which I I don't know that I would recognize Kid Cudi to see him. Um, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I probably confuse him with Wiz Khalifa. Okay. <laughs> because I am a racist <laughs> and because I am from Pittsburgh and Wiz Khalifa is from Pittsburgh. Oh, and Kid right. from Cleveland. Uh, and you know, who doesn't, even those of us from these cities confuse them sometimes. Go so. Browns. <laughs> Not on this podcast. <laughs> uh, so. So the other acting showcase I assume is then from Cynthia Nixon. Yes. Yes. Who plays, uh, yeah. James's mother who is, uh. Uh, succumbing to very very aggressive cancer do you think they played the game where christopher abbott's like i'm the i'm the uh i'm the miranda are you <laughs> right he's like i have to say that i feel like such the miranda on this set <laughs> no i wonder or if he'd be like Nixon the miranda or since you know girls was sort of like sex and city for like the williamsburg generation if he was like you know i was kind of like the steve he was the or, steve you know so and she's like oh yeah okay uh yeah no uh so cynthia nixon is is not much of a miranda in this movie um she is uh more more of a charlotte really oh charlotte. um she you know she's very uh when we first see her she's wearing a wig that actually makes her look like leslie ann warren which is very confusing <laughs> and uh and you know she's a very just soft nurturing encouraging maternal presence but then the ravages of her disease start to kick in, and then the movie is unflinching. Oh, man. Um, it's very much, it's sort of like a mother-son version of Amour. Uh, the movie um, oh, right. from a few years ago, Hanukkah's film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like a mother-son version of that. Okay. Um, in that we're watching, um, because Charlie, or <laughs> <laughs> James, runs away um, for a while. The film actually begins with him at a wake for his father, who's just passed away. And now his mother is dying as well. And so for a while, he just runs away on a vacation. But then when his mother gets very sick, he has to come back and deal with it. And then it just digs right into a pretty lengthy just him caretaking for her while finding little ways to really lash out in self-destructive ways whenever he's not sitting in his mother's apartment watching her deteriorate mentally and physically in front of him. And uh, and, and it's Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon goes fucking deep in really? this role. Oh, my God. She'll rip your heart out. Is it is it like wit? Uh, no, I mean, it's not even like, it's, it's kind of, well, it's not from her point of view, the way the oh, wit right. is from, yes. is from that character's point of view. So you're not seeing it through her eyes. It is somewhat similar in that it goes into sort of like very, you know, death be not proud category mm-hmm. territory. Um, but 
there's a, but yeah, so it's, it's from James's perspective. And so, you know, there are scenes where, you know, there's one scene in particular where she, he, she goes missing and he finds her at like a, you know, at like a, a Dwayne Reed and he has to have her, you know, taken away by an ambulance and, uh, and her, her fear and horror in the scene and just like begging to just get to go home. It's, 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 Oof. it's very real. It's very, it feels very like you're like, you feel that exact like heart being ripped open feeling you get from like being around that in real life. Right. That's sort of like um, helplessness. Yes. Uh, and, and she's, yeah, she's heartbreaking. And uh, this is, is an incredible performance from her. I mean, we always knew that she was the real actor from, you know, oh, out, of the, I mean, out, of, out of the quartet of that, of that cast. Not that any of them are, are necessarily bad, you know, Charlotte, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but Cynthia Nixon is, has, has, you know, has continued to find really incredible, interesting roles for herself. Um, in the years since, and this is this might be kind of her greatest achievement yet um, for film acting since Sex and the City. It's a really dynamite performance. She was nominated for uh, an Independent Spirit Award for it. Um, oh, really? So, and okay. they've been they've been pushing her, as was Christopher Abbott. Uh, so that they've both been getting pushed for. I don't think they actually realistically expect to get Oscar consideration just because the movie is so small. But you know, like there's no time like the present to push it. Right. Uh, this is a movie that if you're a fan of you know of really it was like excellent dramatic acting as well as um sort of very stylish handheld uh cinematography the look of the film is also great um you know it, it's just definitely sort of like a uh you know a really dynamic little sort of like digital video shoot film okay and uh and it's it's very intimate it's very much in the character space and uh and and yeah, it has a great score and it's yeah it's a really fantastic little character piece so, given the setup of the movie, this is not me, James White, and the Dying Girl. Me and Earl, <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. No, um, the, the James White would be the me, um, oh, right. in that one. Although, <laughs> you know, I uh, there's even beyond so James the fact Earl, Kid Cudi, and the Dying Girl. The very funny thing is that Earl in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl is the black best friend. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> James White, Kid Cudi, is the black best friend. And in each one, there's a dying girl. Um, although in this is a dying mom, um, and the other, you know, it's a dying, you know, friend who becomes kind of a girlfriend ish. Uh, but no, um, so I would take a million of James White's over one mean Earl and the dying girl any day. Um, this is much more emotionally authentic. Um, and it's not really about, I had a lot of problems with that movie. One of which was that it kind of sacrifices, um, both it has a girl die so that a young white boy can learn to appreciate life more um and also he has you know the you know young black best friend who is just there to be like man don't you see mm-hmm. and you know what are we, we didn't we talk about not doing impressions of other races <laughs> was that an impression a little bit it came right out <laughs> i was channeling it i can't help it i'm an actor um <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, you know, he's there to be like, Hey, come on, you know, like this, don't, you know, get your hat out of your ass. Don't you know life? Right. Um, while the white kid's like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so that was, you know, in that case, the girl was literally just introduced so that the guy could learn how to appreciate life more and to right. grow up a little. Um, James White is sort of about that kid a few years on, because in that movie, the kid's in senior high mm-hmm. and in this, he's supposed to be 21. And so it's that kid a few years on. So he's playing someone who's 21? Yes. Okay, that's notable. <laughs> he can he can pass ish. Um but uh but yeah, so he's a few years on and you know, it's it's you know, he's he doesn't really have any responsibilities. He's very immature. He's very self-destructive. He's very hedonistic. And um and so the movie is sort of about him really being forced by life 
to uh, to sort of man the fuck up and face reality. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the last shot of the film is moments after he has essentially, he's now like an orphan, even though he's not a child. And uh, and he's just staying there smoking. And, and you're kind of realizing that like this is what's hitting him. Like, okay, like now, like whether I want to face reality or not, life has now snatched me out of my stasis. And now like, I have no choice. Right. Like I no longer have a choice in this matter. And, um, and so it's just much more raw and real, um, than me and Earl, which I mean, like me and Earl wasn't trying to be raw and real. It's a very whimsical little, little dramedy. Um, but I also thought it was full of shit. And, um, (laughs) and James White is, is not. James White is very honest and very piercing and, uh, and, and just very powerful and well done. So this is the pick of the week. So I assume it's going to be a binge it. Yes, it is. It is a binge it. Uh, James White is the kind of little movie that I, I wish, which I mean, you know, I don't mean to talk about in a patronizing way, but you know, it's a super small indie, super low budget, and it's the kind of movie that I really want to use this um, as an opportunity to talk about more. Because yeah. when I was writing my reviews, I never, I, I felt like I never had the time to write up the smaller films mm-hmm. because I felt like I had to focus on movies that like my readers would want to read about, and they didn't care to know what I thought of James White. And right. so, uh, so this is the kind of movie that I that I kind of want this podcast to really serve. So James White is the pick of the week, and I hope that you will check it out. James White is out now and is rated R for drug use, some sexuality, and language. All right, everyone, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, this is actually the first episode in which we're planning on going weekly instead of biweekly. Uh, so we will be back next week with another episode. Uh, In the meantime, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Jason underscore Leroy and Rebecca at Fight underscore Balance and like The Binge on Facebook. Until next time, this is Jason Leroy signing off. Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. There There goes the binge.